I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cock. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> you have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Cheers. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica, and I'm delighted to use the podcast as an excuse to catch up with a very good and old friend who I enjoyed many a drink with in the days before Zoom became the way we had to communicate with each other. So welcome to the podcast, the Managing Director of Beryl's Strategy Consultants for the US, Martin French. Dan, good to see you. So... One of the things about this podcast is it's a whiskey podcast, obviously, and the barrier to being on as a guest is, are you interesting and do you drink whiskey? Now, I'd like to think I'm educating people in the world of whiskey and trying to promote whiskey. And so you being on the podcast is a great example of this, because in all the times we were in bars or clubs, I don't mean nightclubs, but private members clubs or golf clubs together, you were nearly always drinking wine or gin and tonic but you're drinking whiskey. So I feel like this is a good part of helping whiskey sales across America. So what are you drinking, Martin? So in my glass right now, Dan, I have got a Macallan 12-year-old. Good. Um, sherry oak cask. And I have to say, it's very nice indeed for just after six o'clock on a Tuesday evening. Very good. Quite right, you should drink Macallan, which is the official whiskey of James Bond, and you always dress immaculately. Um, so uh, it's it's an entirely appropriate whiskey. So I was trying to think what the right whiskey to have at this end was. So as you probably know, I always try and pair the whiskey with the guest. And I was thinking, is there anything from Michigan, where obviously you're based? Not really. Is there anything from Oxford, where you're from in the UK? Not really. I was thinking, I'm, I'm I, you're obviously a great golfer, um, so I was going to maybe do Eagle Rare for the Eagle gag, but I did that on last week's podcast when I had a golfer on. Uh, he's even better than you because uh, he's a professional golfer. So in the end, I decided to go for Woodford Reserve, and the reason I've gone for Woodford Reserve is because you, although you were always drinking gin and tonic when we were together, I was always mostly drinking whiskey, and you gave me a bottle of Woodford Reserve Birmingham Country Club Special Edition because your golf club in, in Birmingham, in, in Michigan, had gone and done a barrel pick, and you gave that bottle. So one of your best parts of your golf game is your driving, which takes us wonderfully on to the main topic of discussion, which is driving. So tell me about your... We have to have some links, Martin. So a look of disdain <laughs> on your face. You obviously haven't seen me for long enough. This is how we operate here. Um, so... Tell me about your 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 day job, who you're working for, um, and and who you worked for before, because we met each other through 
the automotive industry and spent many a very, very cold January together in Detroit when they hold the motor show at the coldest possible time of year. So for the record, um, my short game is the best part of my game, but we'll think of how we're going to link that to, uh, to, to, to the automotive industry later. So maybe let's take a, maybe take a step back a little bit of how I ended up in, in Michigan. You can tell um, this isn't a Midwest accent that I've got. So I actually, I moved over here nine years ago um, when I was working for a company um, called Wabasto and Wabasto, what they're known for and have been known for for over a hundred years is the, the sunroof manufacturing. And I came over just for a couple of years to, to, to run a couple of business units and help uh, at a difficult time when the automotive industry had come out of its last crisis, which was the financial crisis of around 08, 09. And um, yeah, to, to, to get the business up and running for the, for the future. And I was only meant to be here for two or three years. Um, so here I am now, just about to start my 10th year. And in 2019, uh, I decided to go into um, the world of management consulting. And the reason why I decided to do that, I thought that I'd spent my, I'd spent my entire career either working for car companies or working for suppliers and uh, I always thought that I had a really good understanding and a good knowledge of the industry. And I've known this company, Barrels, and the founding partners uh, since their inception, since they started out of a basement, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and they're all really, let's say, car or mobility enthusiasts, and, and they've built the company into what it is now. And the opportunity came for me to yeah, do the startup in the US, um, be employee number one here and really get the business uh, going. And uh, no sooner had I started doing that than a global pandemic hit. Mm. Indeed. So, um, so yeah, I found myself in the world of, of going into the, of mobility, the, the, whole, the whole value chain of mobility, right from in, insurance, all the way through to car manufacturing, all the way in, into the retail part of it. So it's been an incredible one-year uh, journey and an incredible amount of time um, to, to learn as well in, in terms of all of the other areas of the industry that being in a supplier is just not in your vision whatsoever. Mm. So, uh, so yes, um, a year in with uh, with Beryl Strategy Advisors, and we're a company that only focus on uh, mobility or automobility. So we're we're only in the auto industry. That's the, that's what our sole focus is. And, and I think it's interesting because the fact is called mobility, and not just it's not just cars, because the world is. And I think this is the bit where it starts to get really interesting in the industry is it isn't just about making a really good, nice car that people then buy and then people drive. The, the world is becoming more integrated. So it is about mobility and its solutions are beyond just the specifics of the car, however clever that car is. It's a whole journey before you get into the car, after you've got out of the car, and even maybe getting into another car somewhere else, which is still part of your package, as it were. Um, so can you just talk about, it sounds 
I know that you know there are whole po- podcasts I imagine devoted just to mobility. So this is not that. But for the lay listener who's tuned into the whiskey podcast, who was as interested about Hollywood and golf and chunk from the Goonies, and now is hearing about mobility, give us a sort of how the car world now exists in more than just the car. So I think the the first thing is maybe to think about the the change that the industry is going through at the moment. It, it's it's going through the biggest change since Henry Ford you know revolutionized the way that cars were were manufactured you know a hundred and something years ago it was, well if you wanted a faster car then you'd have some more horses right to pull it uh and then we we, we, we the industry was was really revolutionized by by henry ford here in De, here in detroit uh and and now a hundred plus years later we find ourselves going through the the next revolution in the industry and and it's not just as you said about the auto industry it's a, it's about mobility and all kinds of mobility whether it's shared mobility whether it's micro mobility whether it's autonomous mobility whether it's moving freight around um i think the the biggest thing uh the biggest change in the industry is, is not just the, the shift towards electrification and the the autonomous world that we will start to step into in in years to come but i think it's also about how connected the vehicle is becoming not just to an individual but to the whole ecosystem around that individual and to the whole ecosystem in and around cities smart cities for example just the way that the vehicle is communicating with not just the driver but maybe the restaurant that it's going to the traffic lights that it's stopping at um and uh, and all of the other vehicles around it so it, it's becoming a complete network uh of, of networks basically uh so it's it, it is it's evolving de- literally day by day um i think the pandemic that we've that we we're hopefully starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel has definitely I would say altered the, the the automobility business model a little bit. Um, if you think if you think of of a, of a journey following a navigation and you take a left turn or a right turn, we've been rerouted a little bit uh, in terms of what some of the priorities are and some of the challenges ahead of us. But but no, for the most part, it's it's all about um, electrification, autonomous driving connectivity and um, and how that fits in with the whole ecosystem around us. So I want to do autonomous driving, but I want to do connectivity first. So when I was living in Germany, I remember being invited to a launch of the new electric car, which is, I guess this must be seven years ago, the i3. And they were all very excited in the presentation to tell us that if you bought one, if you were going to go on holiday within Germany, if you, you buy one of these cars, you, you know, you drive it to the airport, you park it, then you fly to another German city. You can, as part of your ownership of the i3, you can get in another i3 that's part of a ride, a drive share at the other end, and you can drive it around. And then also, I can't remember the exact deal, but like three times a year, you could get a free rental of a BMW X5 
five or seven so that if you wanted to take your family skiing which was the example they gave us and you needed a bigger chunkier off-road car you could have one and you get that not by paying extra but that's when you buy the car you get you know the same car in another city and a bigger car when you need it and that was it blew my mind a little bit i'll be honest um and that was the first time i heard of it that thinking is now i'm not quite sure it's standard but it's getting much closer to an industry standard is that right yeah i think there's 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 lots of different ways to look at whether it's owning a vehicle or or let's call it a, a customer journey or customer experience for a particular brand um the traditional way is is you lease your car or you buy your car and you have it for three or five years and you sell it or return it back to the dealership but there's lots of other options where many brands now you can pay a flat fee per month and you can have one car you can have a large suv for five days you can have a sports car seven days later uh, so there's lots of different ways to experience brand to experience a brand um, and to, to evolve the customer journey with that brand uh, but i think i think everyone's thinking of different different models the the us is very different still to europe obviously the the biggest selling vehicle in the us is still a pickup truck uh and that's very very different to the to to, to europe um the public transport infrastructure in and around the uk and europe is very different to what it is in the us so it, it's it's very different from from region to region but for the most part I think you're right. It's becoming the norm in terms of different ways to experience different brands, getting people into different vehicles, different ways of owning or sharing a vehicle. They're just evolving month by month. Because we in America, we subscribe to a car for want of a better expression. So we use one of these car subscription services where insurance is wrapped in to the cost. Now, part of the reason we did it is because between my wife and I, we kept driving into things. I drove into a house once and she kept driving into other people. And therefore, our insurance went up massively. So it was cheaper to have insurance wrapped into the cost of the car. But, we, you know, we are paying a subscription. So we've got the car. We can swap the car. We haven't because it's just annoying with car seats for the kids. But we could swap the car out and we've got this package and we pay every month for it rather than owning or leasing in a traditional way. And that feels relatively modern over here, although in Europe, you know, it feels quite old compared to things I saw years ago. Ha is America sort of 10 years behind? Not in terms of the quality of the cars, but in terms of the solutions, is America 10 years behind because of, as you said, public transport integration, people just wanting to have a big truck they put their own stickers on? No, I don't think so. The first question I want to just check is um, your uh, driving into a house wasn't um, whiskey podcast related, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was sober and it was lunchtime and it was quite a big house. I just, I misjudged the driveway and we did some damage to the front of somebody's house and to the front of our car. But yeah, that's a, an entirely legitimate question. So, um, no, I, I actually think that the um, US companies are leading the way now in terms of what the future of, of mobility and automobility is going to look like. You know, you've only got to go back five or six years and, and and look at how Tesla has completely disrupted the the whole 
the whole automotive industry. There's there's no question. Totally disrupted it, and 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 it's disrupted it for the better. Um, just in terms of where they operate as a as a as a business, um, how they're led, their whole thought leadership. Uh, it, it's it's a completely different way, and that's shaken up the the traditional car manufacturers over here and it's also spun out some new ones you know we're going to see we're going to see some exciting stuff we, we talked about pickups and you know the love affair of of large suvs and pickups over here but tesla will put one out there ford which is the best-selling f-150 they'll electrify that next year then we've got the the new kids on the block like rivian they're going to bring out large suvs and 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 pickups and I think the, the interesting thing is the way that the, the architecture of the vehicle is changing because of a, of a shift away from an, an internal combustion engine to a, a battery platform. There's a lot more creative things that you can do with the space in and around the vehicle and also what the vehicle can offer as a utility vehicle. So, uh, so no, I don't think, I don't think they're, they're behind at all. I, I think they are really, really leading the way in terms of, of how we're going to think about mobility in in the in, in the future, and and the other thing is is that the US is a demographically is a fascinating place. You know, you've 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 got the cities like New York and Chicago, and you've got cities like LA that has just zero public transportation. You know, a public transportation system in and around the the area, and then you have the massive distances that you have to drive in and around the Midwest to get from city to city. So demographically. There's a lot of different challenges to resolve. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think for the consumer, the people that are going to be buying these vehicles, subscribing to them, renting them, whatever they're going to do, it's going to be a real fun time. Let's talk about Tesla. It's fascinating. That, you know, that, I mean, there's a whole lot of Tesla, which is just about the person who runs Tesla. But let's talk about the car side of the business. I mean, they are, I imagine you've been in a few. They're extraordinary cars. You know, the the... The display is bigger than some people's televisions, I think. But the cars are so clever that in LA, particularly, one of the selling points when they were trying to sell me a Tesla, which I didn't buy, um, was it's like pick a place that sounds like it's a long way to drive to. So I'd pick Las Vegas because it's one of my favorite places, and indeed a place you and I have spent some some quality time eating and drinking. And he showed me that. Because obviously range anxiety is a huge issue for electric cars, but he showed me that for the Vegas trip, you know, there's charging stations along the way, so don't worry, you know, you're not going to run out. And the fact that the way the map's all built out, it shows you how to get somewhere by staging the charging and telling you how long you need to charge for. So it's, it's you know, they're almost selling it in a very American way, which is like, here's this amazing car, it looks cool. You can use it in the high occupancy vehicle lane in LA, which is a big deal. Oh, but also um, you can still make it to Vegas. It is, they are beautiful cars. How much are they, like in LA, everyone's got a Tesla, it seems. But if you drive around Birmingham Country Club um, or, you know, Detroit, Michigan, are you seeing as many over there? You know, is it going to, change the game in the rest of america or just in places like la san francisco new york no i think it's already changed um <clears throat> there's a lot of teslas around here even even despite the pothole problems that we have here in michigan after the after the cold the cold winters and then the the, the spring comes um 
there, there's still a lot of Teslas around. Um, yeah, it, it's the number one selling uh, electric vehicle, and they, they are they are they are smart cars, and and I think the reason why they got ahead of the game so much was because. Elon Musk looked at two things and he didn't say, I, I want to build a profitable car. I don't, I want to, I don't want to build the best looking car. He had a vision, which was to completely change what the future of mobility would look like in a sustainable manner. You know, he wants, he wants to, he wants to save the, the planet. That is exactly what he wants to do. And he, and he did that by building Tesla as a technology company not as a vehicle manufacturer to start with. And, um, you know, they even years ago, Tesla Motors, the Motors was dropped from Tesla years ago. Um, you know, it, it is. It's a, it's prim primarily, it's a technology company. They're, they're fantastic cars. But what they've done is, is they've, they've shaken up everybody else and um, they're really catching up. There's some, there's some great vehicles coming out there now. And... Uh, I, I think the, the other thing to, to, to look at that maybe many people don't is I think there is a dark side to Tesla uh, in terms of whether it's the the vehicle quality, whether it's maybe can be sometimes the culture of the company that they haven't got a, a, a dealer or a distribution network. Yeah, there's a there's an upside, and we've decided we're going to call it a dark side to Tesla as well. But but for the most part, what they've what they've done to the industry is turned it on its head, and it's going to make it a lot lot more uh, fun for a lot of people in the in the years to come. Because obviously, there's two sides to this: there's the electrification part, but then there's the autonomous driving part. Uh, and obviously, you don't have to have an electric car for it to be autonomous, uh, or elements of it to be autonomous. Now, you talk about the dark side. If you were to stop you know, your average man or woman in the street, the dark side of Tesla, if they don't know about some of the, the the corporate practices, like the fact that hundreds of people, it was announced very recently, got coronavirus because they just kept the factories open and didn't really care. But the dark side people talk about the most to do with Tesla is the autonomous driving side and the fatalities that have occurred as a result. Now, I think it's right to say that, you know, in the industry, given how many miles have been driven by Teslas autonomously and the number of deaths compared to normal driving it's a minuscule percentage but obviously there's a massive psychological barrier to you crashing and killing somebody and your car crashing and killing somebody on your behalf so can you just talk a bit about the psychology of autonomy and how much the very well publicized Tesla death when the car couldn't recognize the side of a truck has maybe even harmed the, the movement of autonomous driving. So, so a quick question back to you: Have you ever have you ever been behind the wheel and let go of the steering wheel and let the car take over? Not of a Tesla. I did it um, at an auto show in a car park. I think I did it in Vegas at CES, and a car drove me round relatively slowly round a some kind of obstacle course while not driving. And I hated every second of it. I just assumed at some point it was going to drive into something. Uh, and even actually, I was in Vegas where Lyft were doing a autonomous driving thing, and it was in a BMW. Now there's a man, literally a man with his hand like next to the wheel. But even then, um, 
it was the car was driving and I just assumed the whole journey even though I know technology I just assumed that we were going to like well you know drive into a house or worse so I think I mean there's 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 dip, first of all there's different there's different forms of technology um that's that's used to guide different cars um a lot of the vehicles that maybe you and I have shared in Vegas um they're using a lot of lidar technology and and tesla uses something um a little bit different from the from from the lidar technology the, the whole the whole psyche of it i think it is i mean the first time i did it i was i was i was petrified it it, it just not not because i was scared of the car crashing into something i that i wasn't worried about that it was just the fact that i was behind a wheel and i just took my hands off it you know, it, it's it's very it's a very weird feeling of something that you're so used to being in control of and being in that normal traditional driving position and just taking your hands off the steering wheel and start talking to the person next to you. It's it's a it's a really really bizarre bizarre feeling. I, I think the way that go back to your point of of the. The, the the fatalities um, and it's not just Tesla. You know, it's happened with um, with some of the other ride hailing and and ride sharing companies that have been trying technology. Um, it, it's all going to be about it's all going to be about legislation at the end of the day. You know, and what we can what we can have on the road and how we can operate it. Uh, and I don't think a lot of the the legislation is is catching up with the technology, quite frankly. Um, so I think that's going to be one challenge that the industry is, is going to face, uh, it, certainly in, in terms of autonomous. But I, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing a key trend now where if you, if you recall, let's just go back 14 months ago, maybe even a little bit longer before, it, before COVID-19 was even a word in our dictionaries, and there was kind of like a race to get to robo taxis. Uber was investing, Waymo are on board, you know, Tesla have got their, their products, GM have got their products, Ford have got theirs. Um, and I and and what what we're seeing now is is that whilst there's still a lot of research and development going into those companies, Uber have got rid of their self-driving part of their business, and it's it looks like and certainly what we believe it's going to go much more into freight and commercial vehicles so in terms of the the mass early adopters for autonomous vehicles it's going to be in freight and it's going to be in commercial vehicles because it's so expensive to to invest in these products and these are the vehicles that are not going to be sat on your driveway 23 hours a day they can be out on the road 23 hours a day and and really pay back some of that business case and so that's where a massive focus in the industry is going to be now is in the freight and the commercial segment it's really interesting because as you say there was this rush to have robo taxis and autonomous driving and it, psychologically it's just a tricky thing you've been to the same auto shows as i have you've been to more and obviously you live in this world but when you go to these shows and they tell you the car of the future, they show you a version of this car where you sit in the front, you drive out your driver, you get on the freeway, and then the front seat swivels back and you're now facing backwards 
and your whole family is sitting there, you know, in the videos that they make in CGI, everyone's playing board games and, you know, watching movies on the roof and who knows what. And then when you turn off the motorway, you swivel back and you, you know, you finish the last bit of driving and all, and you sleep in your car as it drives across America and all that sort of stuff. That's all lovely, but psychologically people need to get past letting go of the steering wheel and feeling sure that it's safe. So is, is it, is it the psychology and the legislation and the insurance and all of that that's holding all of this back? Yes, and I think possibly um, maybe the, the maybe the next generation behind this will be the adopters of this because if there's already a, a fall in people getting their driver's license, you know, right across Europe and right across uh, right across the US. So I think I think it's also I think it will be a generational thing that'll that'll that will help shift. But that whole ideal journey that you've just described of you and me maybe going from Vegas back to California, I still think that's uh, that's still a long long way away. Uh, but certainly in, in passenger vehicles. But I definitely think we're going to see that in in uh, in the heavy freight and commercial vehicles sooner rather than later. And obviously America and Australia, I imagine, would be the countries that would benefit from this yeah. most because of their size. But so this is in America, you you know, you load up your truck in a factory on somewhere on the East Coast and it just you let it go and it just drives across the Midwest. Yeah. Drives through the night, doesn't stop to pee, doesn't need a doesn't need to stop off at a Whataburger on the way. It just keeps going and arrives at the other end and then yeah. Yeah. it out. It will arrive at the depot. It will be unloaded, and then it will be it will be moved then into some smaller vehicles that are either electrified that could be autonomous, or even some of the smaller pods. You you would have seen them um, in your role with the with the with the UK government of some of the startups that were coming out of the, U, the UK. You know the 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 little delivery pods, the autonomous delivery pods. So there's there's going to be a, a whole range of things. GM's just partnered up with with FedEx. Um, to to have a much more of a smarter autonomous delivery system. So we're going to see some we're going to see some pretty pretty cool stuff. But one 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 interesting thing as well that I, I would go back on when you talk about electrification um, and people's perception is that I really think we're getting over ra- this whole range anxiety now. I, it, it's no longer really an issue. I, I think it's just got to be. There's got to be some encouragement of how you get people out of their internal combustion engine vehicles and get into a modern day electric car. I mean, mm. if you drive an electric vehicle and get back into your regular car, it feels so archaic. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, it, it really does. And it's not just about the, the size of the screen. It's about the whole, the, 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 the way the car feels, the way the car drives, the, the intense speed and pickup that you get from it. Um, but again, I think in order to get people to adopt, the, the the infrastructure has got to be there as well. And I'm not just talking about Tesla's supercharger network. You know, a lot of a lot of um, big power companies in in and across the states and across Europe, they've got to they've got to figure out what their business model is when when there's no gas stations along the way, and the, the infrastructure has got to be there. And I think when people start to see the infrastructure just exactly like you said you get into a tesla and it already tells you where you need to stop and how you're going to recharge your car 
once people start to understand that, that infrastructure is 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 coming and it's coming fast, then I think the adoption rates of the vehicles, you know, and getting people into the these cleaner energy vehicles is going to be a lot quicker. It's interesting. The range of anxiety thing is fascinating. So I remember talking to somebody about this at I think it was at BMW, and they said that if you actually get people to describe their journeys, the range the range of anxiety, like unfortunately a lot of anxiety, is unnecessary because you just don't go that far that often so you know particularly if you've got a charging station at home and at work it's obviously in the days when people actually used to go to work which obviously has changed in the last year but you know it'll be impossible for you to run out of charge uh, on those journeys now the, the issue is the longer ones and say tesla have worked out where they needed to build their superchargers to get you to vegas which is you know, there are other journeys people from LA do. You know, some people drive all over the place. But given the range of these things now, it's not 50 miles on a battery. You know, these are going two or 300 miles. And then you start being in a position where it's the same issue. As long as there's a charging station next to the gas station, you would have stopped out on your 500-mile journey, which you can't do in your normal car anyway either then you can solve that problem. So it, it does feel like unnecessary anxiety. It, it, it is. And, and you know, if, if this, this, this coming weekend, I'm doing a trip over, over to the coast of, of Lake Michigan, and that's about a 200-mile journey. That's, you know, on a, on a full-charged, uh, fully-charged electrical vehicle, you've got no problem. You know, even probably even, cold, even in cold weather, that will, will affect a little bit of the performance of the battery you still won't have an issue as long as you can charge it the other end. But also you've got to remember is if you run low, you don't have to charge it overnight. You can do a quick charge of 10 to 15 minutes and it will give you 80% of the range, just like a quick charge of your iPhone and it's going to get you there. So, so yeah, I think the range anxiety thing now is, is, is it's being demystified a little bit Mm. for, 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 for sure. Now it's about how do, how do some of these, how do some of these companies take their one foot out of their past where they've got these big three, four liter uh, petrol and diesel engines and they're going all electric by 2030. How do you get people to adopt? That's going to be the challenge. Yeah. It's interesting because there's some very bold statements being made and it's somewhere between 2026 and 2030 seems to be the point at which a lot of companies are going to stop making these cars. Um, And, you know, there's a new Ford Bronco that's come out and there's going to be an electric version. Rolls-Royce, which doesn't feel like a company that would do electric, you know, did an electric model. Everyone's realized that this is a thing. So even, you say, iconic brands are, are turning electric, which must, which must be a, a great thing. It, it, it is. It is. It, it, it's great. It's great to see. And, and, and really now the industry is, it's all in. And not only the industry, the, you know, the federal government, have said that they're they're going to electrify their entire fleet of six hundred and fifty thousand vehicles. So, and again, excuse the pun, this time of year, that's kind of a it's kind of a shot in the arm, you know, for the industry uh, in terms of of the justification of all of the investment that, that companies have put in to to electrify their vehicles. So yeah, it's it's going to be good. It's going to be good for the environment and. And I don't buy a lot of the discussions that are out there that it's going to affect other industries and lose other jobs and the traditional 
whether it's whether it's gas and oil or traditional way, ways of manufacturing, I, I don't I don't buy into that at all. You know, the next generation of of people that's coming behind me, you know, whether they're coders, designers, you, 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 it's a completely different talent pool that that the automotive industry is now drawing from. And um, yeah, I think it's it's going to be good. It's going to be good for, for 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 people and mobility. It's going to be good for the environment. I think it's going to be good for business. Yeah, I know. I know some of this stuff gets politicised, but at the end of the day, the economics, Schumpeter's theory of disruption, like things are meant to have their moment, and then that moment is meant to move on, and the next thing comes, and it's good for society when it does. Even if the people who used to make videotapes, um, and actually, frankly, now the people making CDs, you know, that that yeah. world has gone, and that's just how it is. So am I allowed to ask you what car you drive? I actually don't have a car. So, so when I when I transitioned to um, this job that I'm in now, and we're all about automobility, I decided that what I wanted to do for at least a year was to try all of the forms of shared mobility, micro-mobility, and uh, subscription services and everything else around me, particularly in the Midwest where people say, you know, it's traditional, everyone's got two or three cars on their, on their, you know, in front of their garage. Um, so, so no, I, I, I actually returned my car back when I um, changed, uh, when I changed jobs and I don't have a car at the moment. Fascinating. But the next car that I do have will be an electric car. Okay. So when I lived in Germany and I didn't have children and I lived in Berlin, which was a poster child for ride sharing. Sorry. Well, yeah, for drive sharing schemes. So there was four different schemes and I was subscribed to all of them. And you'd go out of your house, open whichever app was convenient. There would literally be a car just randomly parked in the street. And this only works in cities where there's lots of free parking. Um, I think there are versions that work with car parks, but it gets a bit more complicated. But where we lived in Berlin, you wander along, there's just a car. And there was different schemes. But BMW had a scheme. And it was great because you didn't know whether you were going to get the i3. You were going to get, if you're lucky, you got a, you know um, an X5. But normally it was the smaller ones. You, know, you, you hold your driving license with a chip on it. And now I imagine that's just a phone. The door opens, you get in, you drive somewhere, you get out, you leave it on a random street, you get charged for the distance and the time or a version of both depending on the scheme and so we didn't have a car for three years because we just randomly picked up cars and when we went out of a night out we we drive there in a random car we drink whiskey and therefore get um an uber home but um if a rare occasion we didn't drink we would drive home in another car so it's like a self-drive randomly parked taxi and it was an amazing system and then when we had kids, it didn't work anymore because then you start getting into a world of carrying around car seats and your kids being sick in the back of another car that you have to pay cleaning fees on. But it was it was a weird, and this was, you know, whatever it is, eight, nine years ago, and the world's moved on a lot since then, but it was a weird sort of utopia of randomly driving cars, which I loved. I, I'm, I couldn't do it now because it's too complicated in LA and with with kids, but... That I got to see what I think the future might look like for people when all these systems get better. Yeah, when I was in London uh, in the summer last year, there was a, a colleague of mine 
he was go going from Islington to Pimlico and it was actually cheaper for him to get a, a zip car. I think whether it was a, a mini or a Ford Focus or something like that and drive and just leave it and then get the, the tube home. It was cheaper for him to do that. I think it was like six pounds for him to just rent a car and drive that journey. And then it would be sanitized and cleaned and everything else. Uh, so yeah, all of these different ways of, of being mobile are definitely disrupting the, the industry, but certainly here in America, we, we do love our cars. We are in love with our, our cars and I do drive a lot of them, whether it's, you know, getting in to see some of the new technology, um, whether it's with a reporter or whether it's a bit of benchmarking or whether it's a, a rental car. Um, but I, I can safely say that traditionally with the amount of times I normally spend up in the air, you know, traveling around um, some of our client base, then um, it's, it's been cheaper and, and, and definitely a better business model to not have my own vehicle. What sort of schemes have you used in the last year to get yourself a car beyond sort of Avis and Hertz in a traditional way? So um, it's been disbanded now, but, but Lincoln had a, had a wonderful system called Lincoln Personal Driver. So it was, it was set up app-based, kind of similar to Uber. You just needed to give them a bit more time because there's not that many cars on the road. Um, but they would always pick you up in a, in, a, in, a, in a brand new Lincoln, whether it was a Navigator or, or, or whatever, um, whatever vehicle they had. And, it, and it, was a, it, it was great in a number of ways. One, you, you would go to your destination and be picked up in your destination in a really, really nice car. You're not worrying about the state of your Uber that you're, that you're ordering. And the other one, I think it was good. It's very good to get you to learn and understand a little bit more about a brand, you know, about what they're trying to do, about the key features on the vehicle. Um, it was, it was a, a really, really good service. And, and when I've been in Munich, I've been on scooters. Personally, I think they're a death trap. But, um, you know, it's a great way of getting around a, a city. You've got more, you've got more chance now, I think, of being really, really badly injured by a, a scooter going 60 kilometers an hour than you have by a, a Mercedes S-Class going down Maximilian Straza. But um, no, I've, I've done, I've done the, the, the ride sharing. I've done the personal driver. I've done the subscription service. Um, and yeah, I, th there's, there's room for, for, for all of them. I, I, I think that the, the pandemic has disrupted a little bit the, 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 the ride sharing um and some of the subs sub subscription models but if you think about it and if you think about europe and you think about some of the cities that they will come back there is not enough space in cities and in around the world for everybody to have their own car mm. we it will go back to some of the subscription models and definitely into into the to the ride sharing let's just say it's a a bit of a pause on the navigation system at the moment but it will definitely come back so here's a question. My daughter is six. Will she ever drive a car by steering it herself? Yes, she will. I'm putting money on that. Okay. The question is, the question is, is whether or not she'll get her driving license in the first place. Okay. Yeah, no, that's an interesting, that is an interesting thought. Um, uh, yeah, obviously, if we're in America... That changes it slightly if, if we're back in England. But yeah, okay. But if so, obviously, by the end of her life, 
driving life of 50 years, presumably by the end, we may be in fully autonomous, but you think in 11 years' time, driving, even if there's more autonomous, she'll be a, she might not park it herself, but she will drive a car. She will definitely drive a car, unless daddy's going to invest in 80 to 120,000 on an autonomous vehicle for her. She's definitely going to be driving a car. So when, so actually here's another, sorry, here's another question. If tomorrow every single car in the world became autonomous, how much would accidents drop? That is a great question. Um, see, I, I don't think we're there yet. I think that is a really good question. But the problem is, is the infrastructure around it, an autonomous vehicle. So there's a reason why there's lots of autonomous vehicles driving all the way around Las Vegas. And that's because the, the city has invested in smart technologies for the traffic lights to talk to the car and the car to talk to the traffic lights and everything else around them. So for a fully, fully autonomous world, it has to be more than about the vehicle and the technology in the vehicle. It's the entire ecosystem of how everything connects. Think of it, think of it more. I've never used this analogy. It's a really good question. Think of it more of how an orchestra comes together. You know, that if you're playing a fabulous piece of classical music and then all of a sudden there's just one instrument that just doesn't come in when it should have done, it sounds awful. It could sound absolutely awful, even though there's 95% of the restaurant, the 95% of the of the orchestra there, and one last bit of it doesn't come together and it's not harmonious, it's not going to work. And in order for to be every vehicle to be autonomous our whole all of our cities everything we all need to be connected to our to our vehicle yeah interesting because i've always thought of it as just a car part so you know if i'm on a freeway sorry motorway well you know i think we both freeway and we're all going we've all got autonomous vehicles and we're all doing you know 70 miles an hour we could all drive theoretically very close together and have more cars on the road and have a very easy journey with no lane changing and all this stuff slowing us down. But if 50% of the cars have got them, 50% haven't, then it doesn't work because the, the, the person driving who, even though they think they're maintaining a consistent speed, they're not. You know, I know there's cruise control, but people don't use it very much. You take your foot off a brake, you brake a bit. You know, the, the, the effect of you braking can cause a traffic jam behind you, even if there was never any reason to break. Um, so then it doesn't work. So you almost, is it, it's not quite as binary as either everybody or nobody, but the real effects of autonomous driving in terms of, you know, traffic efficiency and accident reduction don't come into play until more, you know, the, we got herd immunity, as it were. Herd immunity. Yeah. Whether it's orchestra or, or herd immunity, yeah, that's a really good way of looking. And 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 not just the and not just the the herd immunity of the vehicles. It's about the <clears throat> it's about the, the the cities, the infrastructure on the roads, and and really how everything is really really connected. Yeah, fascinating. So I, I don't know. If, I don't want to get you in trouble because obviously you're a you're a consultancy 
and you can work with any manufacturer, but I can't not ask a car person, what's your favourite car you've ever driven? My favourite car I've ever driven? Um, good question. I've been, I would say, one of the most exhilarating days I had actually was with the first weekend I started working for Beryls. So we're all, we're all, automotive junkies and we we all went to uh audi's uh racing school uh in um in Ingolstadt. and we had i think there was maybe 35 of us and we all drove um i think there were maybe rs5s but then we got into the serious serious stuff of the of the gts and you know and the um they're they're fabulous they're fabulous v10 sports car uh you know we had 10 of those going around their test track um that was that was just incredible to drive at at, at a frightening speed but how much in control you felt with the vehicle it just didn't feel that you could ever lose control of that vehicle so I, w- I would say in terms of what uh, what's impressed me and certainly going around a racetrack, it's definitely been that Audi. Um, but in terms of you, you mentioned, you mentioned it right at the very beginning. I'm going to go back to my McAllen and say the car that I've enjoyed most getting in and out of is an Aston Martin DB5. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Great answer. That's actually funny. So just on the Ingolstadt thing, I lived in Germany for four years. We did buy a car in the last, I think, last 18 months of my posting because we had a kid. And my favourite experience, and I wish they did more of it. It feels like it's the, oh, once you've done it, it's like flying sort of first class on an airline. Once you've done it, it's hard to go back. The German model of car buying is extraordinary. So we bought uh, an Audi Q5. They flew me from Berlin down to their factory. And it's brilliant because you think, oh, wow, they're flying me. Aren't I special? And then you realize that it's cheaper for them to fly you than it is to deliver. But So it's a very clever German efficiency model, but it's also, it makes you feel special, which I took a, I took one of my mates along actually as well. And we, we, we turn up, give you lunch, they give you a tour of the museum there. And then you go to a little area and there's your car and there's a little mini red carpet and the whole thing. And you take a photo and you literally take your brand new car and you drive it home. And it was just the most extraordinary experience. Yeah. And I just feel like that's how you should buy a car. Because, you know, if you're buying a new car, it doesn't quite work secondhand. But just seeing how a car is made is fascinating. And these factories are amazing. And you feel so special. And you're, you know, you're, you get in the car and it's done a mile and a half, um, or a kilometre and a half. And it's just such an extraordinary thing. And that was that was one of my favourite car moments. And I've had a few, you know, I've been in Rolls Royces and Bentleys and all this sort of stuff, but driving my own car home from a factory was the most extraordinary experience. I, I mean, I, I'm glad you got to experience that then because I don't think they do that for a British diplomat post-Brexit now. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. I mean, I, was, I didn't do it as a diplomat, I did it as a normal person, but you're right. I'm not sure we would be as welcome as we were when we went to do it last time. Very good, Martin. Very good. Look, last question. 
If you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? What would it be? And where would it be? Am I only allowed one person? You are only allowed one person, one whiskey, and one location. Okay, I'm gonna I'm just I'm gonna share a very brief story with you after I've answered that question. Um, because it's kind of linked. Um there's so many people that I've that I find fascinating. I've always let me let me get quickly go through my top three. I've always loved reading Bill Bryson's books about his experiences all over the world. I'd I'd love to share uh you know a glass of whiskey with him. Um I think a dinner table with Stephen Fry, I think that'd be that'd be really, really good. Um but I did actually once get to share a glass of whiskey with Sir David Frost um, uh, when we were both delayed and we were in British Airways Lounge many, many years ago. And to actually be sat next to, to him, we were just watching a, the soccer game that was on, football game that was on in the lounge. And just to be sat with a, a legend like that was just absolutely phenomenal. But if I could go back in time and and drink with anybody um i actually think i would have loved to have really met my grandfather and sat down and had uh, a glass of whiskey with him my grandfather was irish and um i think that would have that would be something that i would really like to take the opportunity to do yeah so well what was his name and what would you drink and where would you drink it what would we drink so they were the family were from the west coast of Ireland, over in County Clare. So um, in my limited experience of whiskey, although I have to say I'm very much enjoying this Macallan right now, it's really, really been in the glass for over an hour and it's re I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I would say one of the favourite whiskies that I've drank while I've been in, uh, in Ireland is Redbreast. So a lot of Irish whiskies are triple distilled. They tend to be very smooth and not too peaty. Um, so yeah, so I would uh, I would go back with William and uh, and probably have a rest red breast around a around a peat fire uh, somewhere in County Clare. Amazing, that's a great answer. Now look, Martin, I'm going to break one of my cardinal rules, which is that's meant to be the last question, only because and I, I've been meaning to ask you this and I forgot. But then you when you talked about your your whiskey with Sir David Frost, so actually I'm going to break two rules. So we're not. I'm going to ask you a, a question after the last question, but it's also not a whiskey question. It's a gin question. You have to tell the story because I love this story. You used to fly a ridiculous amount to the point where you were in the the travel tier that's above the ones that they publish uh, for British Airways. <laughs> and yeah. you, my favourite story is your Dame Judy Dench story. So tell us about the gin and tonic you shared with Dame Judy Dench. So this is, this is, she was, this is great because she was, uh, she was still playing M in the Bond films. Um, and and typically, if if we were if we were traveling, you know, long haul, and I was spending a lot of time, I was probably traveling to the US every two weeks at the time. And so we were allowed to fly business class, but sometimes you get that magic double beep at the gate, and you get moved into British Airways first class. And I was traveling back from uh, Los Angeles to London Heathrow, and I was at the front of the plane, and. Um, actually not to name drop 
um, there was a, another uh, famous person by the name of Gwyneth Paltrow, and she was struggling a little bit with her baby. And I offered to give my seat up to the person that was traveling with her. And, um, and I moved back three or four rows and the, 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 the barrier was up in between the, the, the two first class seats. And the screen came down and um, I got the, um, hello, my name's Judy. Nice to meet you, Dame Judy Dench. Um, I, I, I just, I, I, I don't know what it was. I, you, you see people, particularly in LA, you, obviously you see lots of famous people all the time, but I, you know, you're sat ne really next to her on a plane. And I was just, I, know, I was kind of just a little bit starstruck, to be honest with you. And um, before takeoff, um, the wonderful cabin you know, crew of, of British Airways, they come around and they normally offer you a, a glass of champagne or a drink of your choice. And um, so they came over to, to Dame Judy, offered her, would you like a glass of champagne, Dame Judy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Have a glass of champagne. So they walk around the cabin, come to me. Mr. French, um, can we uh, can we offer you a glass of champagne? I said, actually, I'd, I'd love to have a, a Tanqueray 10 and tonic, please. No problem. No problem, Mr. French. And Dame Judy just leant over and she said, you can actually do that? You can ask for a gin and tonic before takeoff. She said, well, I just wish I would have known all of those years, because one would just rather get on with it, wouldn't one? And I just, it was just a great moment of just chatting to Dame Judy about uh, a gin and tonic, you know, and a glass of champagne and where she liked to travel. And she just had time for everybody. And you, you know, when you, when you meet a, a, a famous person or somebody who's iconic, and you just, you just, you just hope that they're everything that 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 you, that you want them to be. And and Dame Dame Judy was that and more in abundance. Amazing, brilliant! I do love that story. Every time you tell it, you tell it better. So look, talking of you hope things are going to be good. Uh, this podcast was exactly what I hoped it would be. Martin French, a man who doesn't own a car because that's how much he believes in mobility. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Dan, Dan, great to speak to you and can't wait for us to catch up soon either in Detroit or in Los Angeles. Mm, I love scotch. 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 Yep. And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>